0: Welcome to Minds Matter season two. I'm Ava.
1: And I'm Beth. And I'm a PhD student at Monash University in the center of consciousness and contemplative studies.
0: And I'm a PhD student at UC Santa Barbara in psychology and social neuroscience.
1: So we started Minds Matter while we were doing our masters together in Amsterdam on our university student radio. And now we're back for season two with a brand new format.
0: This season on the podcast, we'll be joined by a lot of exciting guests, most of whom are in relatively early stages of their careers. So mostly postdocs and assistant professors, people who aren't that far from their PhDs. We'll be talking to scientists on the cutting edge of research on resilience, social networks, perceptions of history, and much more. We're so excited to be back and happy to have you joining us for the ride.
1: So for our first episode, I spoke to Dr. Kelsey Pericard, and she's actually a postdoc who works with me in the Center of Consciousness and Contemplative Studies at Monash University.
2: I'm Kelsey Perricard. I'm a researcher in the Cognition and Philosophy Lab at Monash University. I finished my PhD last year. I did my PhD on the
1: self in autism. So we hear about the term self all the time, like in literature, in you know, things that are connected with meditation, when we're even thinking about our, our identity. So it's this, obviously this very big loaded concept. So when we're thinking about it in terms of like research and science, what does it actually mean? So when I think of the self, I think of something multifaceted. So it's not just one thing.
2: And kind of traditionally, you think of the self as the soul, like it never changes. And it's some core part of your being that never changes. And that's not at all the way I think of the self. So the way I think of the self is all the way from low-level sensory changes to the way we perceive the world, all the way up through what kind of person do I think I am. And there are kind of all different ways that scientists study that. So you can look at changes to attention related to the self. People are faster and more accurate paying attention to their own face and their own name when presented to them. They have better memory for self-related stimuli, so if you do an action you have a better memory for that action or the consequences of that action.
1: When you say, when you think of the self, you think of these low-level sensory processing things and then these higher ideas of like who we are, so I think a lot of us can relate to the idea of the self as this identity of who I am, because that's how we consider it. First of all, what does that mean and then how does that connect without idea of who we are.
2: Yeah. So all of the kind of big ideas about who we are, the only way we know those uh, those traits are true of us is based on the way we interact with the world. So If I think I'm a kind person, am I really a kind person unless I do kind actions, unless I get feedback from the world that other people think I'm kind? All of that information we're getting from the world around us and the consequences of the actions that we're making and all of that stuff informs... The sense of self that we end up having
1: at the end of the day oh that's so interesting yeah so if i think oh i'm a kind person and then i do some sort of action like donate to a charity is it like convincing me that i am that or is that like actually who i am yeah or?
2: so it's kind of complicated i think because the the thing that leads us to act the way we act yeah. is our sense of self in some sense. Right. So the only reason I do kind actions, or not the only reason, but yeah. one of the reasons I do kind actions is because I'm a kind person or because yeah. I think I'm a kind person, kind of both. And then I get feedback from the world once I do those kind actions that I did something kind. And that kind of reinforces the idea that I am a kind person. And so it's this cycle between what you think you are and what you think you have control over in the world, the things you think you can do in the world, the kinds of goals you set for yourself, and then the kind of feedback you get back from the world after you act in the way that you think you are. So you can learn that you're not the kind of person you were, If those actions don't give you the feedback you expected.
1: Yeah, so I was going to ask what if you consider yourself like a good or kind person, but then you do something bad. So just say, I think I'm a kind, good, honest person, but then I steal something. Is that feeling of guilt that I have connected to, like, that's not matching to my sense of self or that feedback is like, I don't want to be that? Like, how would something like that work?
2: I think that's a great hypothesis. I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure I have the evidence to say anything definitive on that. But yeah, I think that that's a great theory of how sense of self might relate to sense of moral responsibility and how
1: your traits feed into that kind of emotion. So I think what's interesting about what you've just described with this sense of self is that it isn't this kind of abstract soul idea. It's very much who we are engaging in the world.
2: And it's that you're constantly learning about yourself. And in learning about yourself, you're forming yourself.
1: And so the self changes across your life
2: then? Yeah, that's the idea. And it's different between different people and different populations. But I definitely think the self and yourself changes a lot in your life.
1: Yeah, another thing I found super interesting is the idea that the self changes. Because again, I thought, I feel like when I'm on this podcast, I sound like I'm like super spiritual or something because I'm like, there's a Beth and there's an a and rah, rah. But I really thought like, The self was just this constant thing that is, you know, the one thing that's constant throughout your life is you or whatever. And it was so interesting that it's, like, your self changes. And then, again, after I spoke to Kelsey, I was talking to friends about it. And they were also asking, oh, well, does this mean when you have a memory of something you did back in time and you really feel, like, very disconnected? Like, why would I have done that? Or, like, that was, like, totally makes you feel uncomfortable and they're like oh is that because it's a different self so at that moment that self kind of understood that that is something I would do and then 10 years later and you just feel very disconnected to that because yourself and all the things wrapped up in that have have changed so I thought that was an an interesting idea as well
0: so one distinction that does exist in literature is this idea of the experiential self versus Mm -hmm. the narrative self. So the experiential self is that self that's making decisions potentially, but that are just for the now. And that's experiencing things, having sensory experiences. And then our narrative self is what is actually tying all of these instances of our lives together. And I think there can be a stronger or less strong narrative self. And I'm not sure if Kelsey's research would go into that idea of bridging who a person sees themselves as like over time but that's something that i find really interesting that you're touching on is this question of how much continuity do you feel with who you were before and who you are now and i think the narrative self is very key to
1: tying all of that together and i think what's interesting with that is like when you just think about it initially you're like yeah i've been the same self but when you actually think about it in like instances of your actions or behavior then it's like no wait hang on that doesn't feel like something beth would do so i think you can feel both ways about about that but i wonder also if this is something that we need to feel that's a continuous thing because if it felt fragmented or different could feel quite alarming so i wonder sometimes with when we're talking about these theories our reactions or feelings to them we're kind of made to feel that way because that's how we can best understand and survive.
0: Because our human societies only work because they're societies and because we each fulfill a different role. You need to be able to understand and be able to predict, as Kelsey was saying, what this person is going to do because especially now we all have such specialized little niches and jobs that we do and things that we're good at. So it's very important that there's a sense of continuation because otherwise we would fall apart. And so for you to be able to rely on everyone else to be giving you that type of experience, you also have to reciprocate that with a sense of your own self, right? She briefly mentioned this idea of solipsism and maybe not thinking that other people have minds, but the only mind that we have access to is our own. So I think our best model of other people oftentimes is us. So if we feel like we have no sense of continuation with ourselves, it's hard to go into the world and trust other people because we don't have that same experience of being able to depend on our own selves. To really understand how Dr. Perricot approaches studying the self, it's important to take into account the framework she's working under. This framework is called predictive
2: processing. Predictive processing basically says that what the brain and the mind are doing is predicting what's gonna happen next in the world, getting feedback from the world about whether that matched or mismatched with the expectations, and then updating what your expectations are next. So one way to think about that is that you're Building an internal mental model of what the world is like and what it's going to be like based on all of your previous experiences of the world.
1: And could you give a, an example of how that would look?
2: So, when I'm sitting in this room and talking to you, what my brain is doing is trying to expect what you're going to say next what kinds of things I'm gonna see next. And that's based on what I expect things in the room to do. So we're sitting in a pretty empty room. I don't expect the keyboard to get up and jump off the table. I don't expect you to jump off your chair and run around and dance, though you might put some music on and we can do that. But I take cues from the environment and based on what I've always seen these kinds of things do and these kinds of people do, I make expectations for the next state of the room which is pretty similar to the last state of the room. But if I was at a music concert, for example, the next state of the music concert is going to be much more complicated than the next state of this room. Um, So there are lots of kind of interacting things in the environment that are going to change dynamically at a music concert, whereas in this room, it's pretty much you and the technology. So what's the benefit of having these models of how we expect the world to be. It's supposed to make processing easier and and quicker for the kind of neural architecture. So it's supposed to be that you don't have to then take in all of the cacophony of sensory input, and process it all. Um, and this is why we have atten- models of attention and all of this sort of stuff that we don't we don't have the cognitive resources to process everything that happens right. at every moment of time. Yeah. So being able to predict what's going to happen and then only really process the things that you didn't predict, uh, the only things your brain has to deal with are the things that didn't match your model, and then those things then update your model for the next time. So hopefully
1: you're a bit better next time yeah. at predicting what's going to happen. Taking this back to the self, within these models, do we have a model of self? Yeah, definitely.
2: So... All of those aspects that I was talking about before, from attentional differences to the traits that we have, to memory and all of these things, the self is the one cause of sensory input that is there from the very beginning to the very end of your life. Right. So when I'm trying to understand what I'm going to see next, one of the things I expect is that my actions will change the world. That So looking over there versus looking over here, I'm going to see different things because I've moved my eyes. And so I can attribute some of the changes in my sensory input to myself or my body yeah. as an aspect of myself. And in similar ways, when I act kindly, I expect changes in the person I'm sitting next to that will be a result of the action that I've just made. So the kind of self that I think I am changes the kind of sensory input I'm getting from the world. Right. It changes my expectations. It changes the results. um, And I can attribute some of those results in the world to
1: my actions and myself. Initially, you were saying how the self changes across our lifetime. Is this because when we're interacting with our environment things might happen that we don't predict is it that information that's changing our model of ourself
2: yeah definitely so the environment that you're in you have different expectations you have different expectations not only of the environment itself and the things totally separate from you, but also about your ability to control things in the environment and your ability to enact your goals and what kinds of goals are appropriate to have in that environment. And the environment is more or less uncertain. Yeah. There might be things that you don't expect in some environments, whereas other environments are very, like like I said, this room versus a concert. This room is much more predictable than a concert environment and the way your actions your expectations your goals your traits how those things interact with the environment is going to be different based on different environments so as you
1: learn about the world you're also learning about yourself so kelsey actually researches this so she does experiments around these ideas how on earth do you try and find experiments that can investigate this The experiments
2: I design are mostly around agency, which you might have been able to guess from the way I describe the self, is a lot about action and consequences, and not in like a moral consequences kind of way, but more in a sensory consequences kind of way. So when I'm thinking about investigating the self, what I want to know is how do our traits influence how we behave in the world, and then how do our behaviors garner sensory consequences in order to inform that sense of self again. One of the experiments that I designed during my PhD was about these squares. So you have these squares on the screen and the participant's task is to figure out which of the eight or four squares on the screen they can control. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is they're moving the mouse, they're acting in the world, they're looking at the sensory information that they're getting from the squares on the screen and they're trying to pick which squares they can control
1: through their actions. So there's eight squares on a screen and they're all moving. Yeah, so they're all moving. And one of them, they are actually controlling. Yeah,
2: so one of them mostly follows the the mouse movements that they're making. And so they have to figure out which one of the eight they're controlling. And that might seem very abstract and kind of separate to our everyday lives, but that's essentially how we get A sense of agency a sense of control in our daily life in the world as we act in the world and then we see what happens and
1: try and figure out whether we did that thing most of the time it happens pretty automatically so with this experiment what do you look at in terms of understanding like our agency is it how long it takes them is it the movements that they do to work out that they control it and then given whatever you find what does that tell you One of the things I was looking at was
2: specifically what strategies people use. What kinds of actions do people take in order to figure out what they can control? So I split all of the mouse movements into different kinds, people moving vertically and horizontally or moving in circles, squiggles, all sorts of different kind of strategies to try and figure out which square they were controlling. And I was also using eye tracking so I could look at which square they were looking at at any moment in time. And another thing I was interested in is when they decided to move their eyes from one square to another. In other Mm -hmm. words, when did they decide the square I'm looking at isn't moving the way my mouse is moving. Uh, I think I should try another square. So it's the participants themselves (laughs) in my experiment, (laughs) (laughs) experimenting with what they can control and trying to figure that out.
1: Kelsey gave a nice overview of predictive processing. And I think a good thing to point out is so rather than being like, so, I'm sitting here talking to Ava, and rather than like everything coming in and my brain like processing that all that information as it comes in, I already have a model in my head before doing this that's also forming how I'm experiencing this. So, yeah, rather than it just being like, oh, all this information's coming in and I'm like processing that, ah, and it's like crazy and there's so much going on, it's already like, no, I have all these expectations already about how this will go. I think sometimes our expectations can also cause us to go, uh, ah, yeah, I think, I think they, they do often. Yeah, that can happen too.
0: So if you feel like that, don't worry, your predictive processing isn't broken. Also, predictive processing is probably one of the biggest and most important frameworks right now for understanding how the mind as well as the brain work. But it's still not what everyone unanimously agrees on. So this is one option for what our brains are potentially doing. I thought it was really cool that she was using this framework to look into the self. And one of the interesting things that she was doing was this idea of when you're interacting with the world, you're testing yourself and you're kind of seeing who you are and building yourself based on your actions And so, interestingly, this is actually, like, one of the most spicy moments in, like, social psychology history. So, in the 60s or 50s, there was this movement that was, like, the biggest movement in psychology at the time that was centered around this idea of cognitive dissonance, Mm -hmm. which basically meant that when people hold a view... That's inconsistent with a behavior that they're taking part in. They feel this discomfort or this dissonance is what they called it, a physical discomfort. And that causes them either to change their view or to change their behavior. But more often than not, it can be changing your view. So this explains why hazing can be such uh, an important motivator and make people feel like they belong and stuff because they're I like... I oh, need I've...
1: to explain what hazing is because oh. I don't know if all our audiences luckily might not know what that is. Uh, well, you're,
0: you're lucky if you don't know what hazing is. Maybe it's our Australians, I guess, who wouldn't know. You guys are yeah, living a great life down think,
1: there. Yeah, I don't think we, we don't really... So it's kind of like with frat and sorority culture, You would have to go through these awful kind of feats of strength, I guess, to be accepted in. And people do awful things to one another. And explaining it, it's really confusing at all why, why it is still a thing. Is it still a thing or is it bad? I don't know i think a lot of it is technically
0: banned but it still happens right i think people hopefully don't die anymore from hazing though there have been cases where it has happened in belgium there was a really terrible case of it that i'll let you all google but it's hard to understand why people would do this but in the lens of psychology and cognitive (laughs) dissonance it all makes sense because if you're doing all these terrible things to get into a club then You don't want to do those things. You understand that you wouldn't want to run around naked in minus 35 degree weather in the middle of Boston or whatever and try to get back to your dorm room with no guidance. You don't want to be doing that. You don't want to be drinking until you're passing out, rolling down a hill, whatever it is. Well, maybe you do. That's up to you. So you've done all this with the goal, you know, to get into this club and you finally are part of the frat or part of whatever group it is. So you tell yourself, I clearly really value being in this because otherwise Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do this. So you change your value so that you adjust it to say like, there was a reason that I behaved this way. So this is this framework of cognitive dissonance where because of this discomfort, you change your values. This theory that sort of blew it out of the water, it was almost like a troll. This guy was like a troll in, in the social psych world. Yeah. He basically said, well, actually, if you think about it, it's not that there's necessarily like this huge discomfort. It's just that people are doing self-perception, meaning understanding themselves the same way that they're understanding other people. So based on someone's actions, you're going to infer who they are. So meaning if we see Michael Jordan doing an ad for Gatorade and he's like drinking Mm -hmm. a ton of Gatorade, we know that he is getting paid millions and millions. We probably aren't going to infer that he loves Gatorade. But if we find out that he was doing this for free then we'd be like oh he probably loves Gatorade right yeah and so the idea there was that our self-perception and the way we understand ourselves is actually exactly the same as the way that we infer who other people are and so this was a problem because it was like there's actually nothing necessarily super cognitive going on there's nothing going on in your body it's just that you're seeing what you do and from seeing what you do you're like oh
1: I guess I like that or I guess I didn't like that So with the first theory, was it more like there's something going on on like a lower level or something and there's some kind of motivations to why we want to do certain things. And the second theory is it's just you do an action and then you're like, oh, I must be a person who does that because I did this action.
0: Yeah. So in the first theory, the idea is you are understanding that your values aren't aligning with your behavior. And so you feel this incredible discomfort that motivates you to have to change your value. And in the other theory, there's none of this hot feeling. It's this very cold, just rational, almost look at yourself as if you were a different person. And so this long-winded explanation of these random theories in the 60s is all just to say that it was really interesting to hear Kelsey almost take that point of view, it seemed, with this idea of predictive processing and going out into the world to test ourselves. So I don't know what she would say to that, and potentially she doesn't necessarily ascribe to that view that it's just, you're interpreting all of your actions the way that you would interpret in someone else's, but it seems like that framework actually lends itself to that idea. And so it was just cool to see this kind of updated version of testing something like that.
2: The social realm is just another realm where predictions happen it just happens that the person that you're interacting with also has predictions which make
1: it a bit more complicated and does that mean like when we're spending time with a friend is that comforting because we have to do less prediction about what they're going to do because we know yeah it could be yeah yeah that it's
2: easier to spend time with people that you know well because you don't have to do as much work to predict what they're going to do
1: so i guess everyone's had the experience of coming away from a conversation or experience and you're just like what was that like <laughs> what? <laughs> what what just went on yeah I don't understand and you can feel like quite isolated It just is a very strange uneasy unsettling feeling. yeah could this model of the self explain those kind of interactions that we have?
2: Yeah so some of that is going to be predicting what the other person is gonna do and if you if they give you responses that you totally didn't expect then your brain's gonna try and update your expectations of their next action, right? And you're constantly kind of modeling what they're gonna do based on what you did And because you're getting a lot of prediction error, you're getting a lot of mismatch between what you expect and what's actually happening in the conversation, your brain is doing a lot of updating. It's like trying to figure out better and better what that other person is going to do. And if it doesn't get a hold on what that other person is like, what that other person's self-model is going to lead them to behave like in that conversation, then you might leave it just being... Confused, essentially. Yeah, that's so interesting. Or disappointed that Uh, you couldn't figure them out. (laughs) (laughs) And if you think of yourself as a very social person, then that might be very disconcerting because you model yourself as being very effective in conversations. And then when you don't get feedback that
1: your conversation was effective, it kind of threatens your sense of self, too. Oh, that's so interesting. And are there, I don't know if we know this, but is there a limit to the amount of different selves we can model in our minds? Like, (laughs) is there like, oh, I can understand 500 people, like different types of personalities, but I can't understand? Or is it like, yeah, how does that work? Well, I don't think we model each self individually in our minds.
2: So I think there's probably like a nested hierarchy of expectation and you can kind of group people a bit into okay. like the type of thing you expect them to do. And maybe the words we have for traits do, help us do that in language, to explain how we group people in the kinds of actions they're going right. to take, yeah. like kind people and yeah. like evil
1: people. Ah, yeah, yeah no, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: okay. So it's not like you have 500 models of the self in your mind and you, every person you interact with, you're like, which self matches right. that right. person? It's more like when I interact with this person, they do the same kinds of things as people that I consider kind.
1: And I thought another thing that she spoke about, which was super interesting, was understanding how her model can give an explanation to when we're with someone else, how that can feel either really easy and at ease, because our model is predicting exactly how that experience will be, or when you meet people and you just feel like, what the hell is going on? I thought it was a nice way to capture those how we feel and like why we can feel that way in those different situations because we've all had experiences where when we're with real friends we feel really at ease and that's why you know we love them and it's nice to be around them and it- feels like comforting and homey and all those things. And then sometimes you meet people and for whatever reason, come away from the situation feeling really strange and kind of a bit alone and isolated. And I thought it was nice the way her framework can explain those two experiences.
0: I also really liked how you hypothesize that potentially that's why we like being around our friends is because we're able to have these accurate predictions of how they are. And it feels like you can kind of let go because your model of them is just going by itself itself in yeah. the best cases but you know i think that also explains the flip side of the reason that only the people that are closest to you can really hurt you because you have a certain expectation of them and a certain prediction and when they violate that expectation then you they're violating your entire model of them whereas yeah. someone you don't know they're not going to be violating that but i think this just shows this predictive processing framework is super powerful yeah. it can be applied That's to so many work. things yeah. And I think often when people learn about it for the first time, they're like, oh, wow, you can really interpret everything that's going on in your life within that framework.
1: So just say I am an awful person. (laughs) I'm evil. (laughs) I'm terrible. I'm cold. All those things. But I want to become kind. Is there a way if I had this information? So how much control do we have over these kind of models are there things that i could do or is this just something that's happening what control do we have there are going to be some
2: features of the self that are explicit to us that we know are true of us and we are getting information back from the world that they are true that's kind of at the explicit level and then there are other things that we do automatically that we don't realize that we do and we can learn about ourselves because other people realize that we do those things and tell us that we're actually (laughs) evil people and those things i think are going to be harder to recognize which makes them harder to change but i do think there's kind of to this predictive processing, active inference, whatever you want to call it, cycle of acting in the world and getting information back from the world, there's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think I'm kind, I do kind things, I get feedback that I'm kind, so I'm kind. Right. And you can kind of change that if you can convincingly tell yourself, I, this evil person, if that evil person can convince themselves that actually deep down I'm kind, yeah. they might start acting in kind ways, getting feedback that they are kind, and then actually become kind. Right. Um, because we don't think of the self as this stable soul-like thing yeah. where there are true things about the core of us that yeah. will never change. There are going to be things that are also harder to change just because we have so much evidence from our past right. that they're true. So if you've spent your entire life being evil, <laughs> this is a terrible <laughs> example because I think no one is really evil. Kelsey's, but.
1: No one is, Kelsey's <laughs> looking at me. <laughs> but. If you spent your whole life
2: being evil and getting feedback from the world that you're evil and you suddenly decide you want to be kind, your model of the world has a lot of evidence that you are evil. Right. So you're not just going to change it in one day with one piece of evidence from the world that you did a kind thing and so you're now a kind person. It's going to be a long series of
1: changing that. So does then this have implications like clinically are there ways that if we use this model we can think okay well someone's had this experience up until this point because they had childhood trauma the amount of evidence they'll need to overcome that that's not who their self is is there? yeah is there ways that we can kind of think about how yeah
2: we can... and you can think about some aspects of cognitive behavioral therapy is really getting at that is like taking your expectations for yourself based yeah. on your history and questioning them and trying to right. replace them with something else and trying to give you evidence that that's not true or give you other sources of evidence than than right. your traumatic past, which might help to alleviate the kind of expectations you have based on your history. But you also have expectations for yourself in terms of how a traumatic event affects you, if you had a lot of them, and figuring out coping mechanisms based on your history will change how you act in response to similar events in the future. Yeah. Um, so I think there are ways to change it. I don't think it's hopeless, right. uh, but it definitely explains some of how people end up. But I think
1: that's kind of common sense, that your history forms who you who, are. Yeah, I guess maybe in this model, though, it's like provides a, a bit of hope because maybe people think, oh, the history forms who you are, and then that's just who you are. Right,
2: no, you're dynamic, you keep changing. So yeah. I think that that's quite
1: hopeful, yeah. for, like in terms of the clinical relevance of this, because Definitely. it's not like, oh, if someone has that trauma, they'll just have carry that with them forever. It's like, no, we can... People in positive environments.
2: Yeah, I think that that's. You just need enough evidence to change your expectation. Okay, so there is a learning task which was done by Sui and colleagues in 2012, which is a self attribution bias task so essentially what they did was they present participants with three shapes Mm -hmm. there's a circle a square and a triangle and they say the circle is you the square is your friend and the triangle is a stranger and you get a minute to memorize that pairing um, which is a random pairing doesn't have anything to do with your actual life
1: okay so circle circle square triangle and uh, all the participants get assigned different yeah so you one.
2: counterbalance them right, so it's, that it's not like nothing to do with the particulars the of, shape. A, of the shape so they learn that the circle is them that the square is their friend and that the triangle is a uh, stranger so they get a minute to memorize those things and then their task they're presented with a pair so they're presented with a shape and yep. a label okay. and they have to figure out whether or not the shape and the label match
1: what they've learned okay so just say circle self match Circle, friend, non-match, and they have to work that out. And they
2: have to, yeah, very quickly, they get flashed them really fast, and they just have to respond as fast as they can which labels and shapes, whether they match or not. And what they found is that when the self-label is presented, people are faster and more accurate at making that match and mismatch
1: decision. So even if it's shape of self but word of friend, so that's a mismatch, they're faster than any of the other people.
2: I think it's just when the label is self. They're faster than okay, the other Okay, so just condition. the word, yeah. But the the interesting part of that experiment to me is that it has no bearing on the rest of their life. Yeah. Like yeah. it's something they've just learned. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not meaningful in any sense. It doesn't relate to what they're going to have to make for dinner or when yeah. they, how they're going to interact with their kids later that night. It doesn't relate to any other aspect of life. And yet having just the label self makes you faster and more accurate. It's like your brain has some preference for things that it's been told relate to you,
1: even if it hasn't learned that it does have behavioural consequences for you later? Because <laughs> if people are faster and more accurate, that means they've learnt it better, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, um, or that their attentional systems react to it. Okay, so their attentions. That's yeah. So when they say that they have have better attention, either either yeah, way. Yeah.
2: But there are memory experiments too that people uh, remember things that they've done. So, for example, there's a task where you play a game with the experimenter and you are putting cards in a pile. Yep. And you put some of the cards in the pile and the experimenter puts some cards in the pile. And then later you're shown a bunch of cards and you're asked, which cards have you seen before? Yep. You're going to be better at remembering the cards that you put in the pile right. than the experimenter did, just because you associate them with yourself with you. in some ways. So, so there
1: is some memory component too. So with the first task where all you have is the word self, as you're saying that doesn't have any meaning like why is this i think it's just that we have a preference or
2: we've learned that if something is related to us whether we're told that or whether we learn that through experience yeah it's going to be more relevant for our future actions we're going to need to predict things better around yeah. that kind of stimulus. So I think it's kind of an accidental happenstance that we can just present participants with these random things and they learn them faster right. or, or respond to them faster.
1: What are you doing at the moment? Anything exciting you want to share with us?
2: Yeah, so I've got a preprint out that you can access, which is called the Beach Study, which is an extension of the Squares Task stuff, which is looking at whether people choose environments based on what they can control or to decide what they can control. The aim of the research in the bigger picture is to figure out whether we both create and choose environments for ourselves that we think we can control things better in. Uh, um, Okay. And whether we switch environments when we're losing control.
1: So we would want to be in environments with control because that's something we can predict better
2: yeah so the idea is that you put yourself in environments where your actions have the most predictable consequences mm-hmm. because they are the least disconcerting but you might choose to put yourself in an environment that is disconcerting on purpose yeah and you might do that because it will teach you something about yourself okay. so you're, you're like testing yourself right. in a new environment because you feel like you've learned enough about yourself in this environment but you know the world is big and wide and variable and so So you say,
1: if I put myself in that environment, would I still think I'm the same self? Ah, Um, so interesting. So I guess we can all kind of understand that concept in terms of our lives. Maybe have the same job, and then you get really comfortable at that, and you're like, yeah, I I get this. Um, And then you're like, you know what? I want to change. Like That's what people are always doing. Yeah, or traveling. People
2: often say they travel to find themselves, and that's (laughs) a very casual, offhanded thing that people talk about in finding meaning in their life. They travel to find themselves. And you kind of do travel to find yourself. No, you totally do. Um, Whether that's because your same self works in that new environment and you you can kind of confirm the self model you had, Hmm. or whether it's that it doesn't work and you have to update it and learn a new self. So how could you do
1: this in a square study?
2: So we have two different environments on the screen. We call it the beach task because one of the environments is the sand um, and the other one has waves. In other words, (laughs) when you move through the environment with your square, uh, in the sand environment, you kind of jitter around randomly, around the mouse movement, or if it's not your square, that square just kind of jitters, jitters around randomly. Whereas in the water environment, you're pushed with these regular waves to the left or the right Uh. Um, and so the two environments have different statistics the the kind of feedback you're getting from them is different and so you can learn or test your expectations for the square that you're thinking you control in one environment and then decide to switch environments and we can look at what leads you to switch environments.
1: So what did you find?
2: So we found that before people switch environments, they get an increase in prediction errors. So yep. they have more mismatch between what they expect and what they're getting from the feedback from the task. Yep. And then after they switch, that that prediction error falls back down. So it's like they're using it as a test. They're getting more and more errors. It's not Things are not working the way they thought they were. And so they test that self-model or that sense of agency over that square yep. in a new environment and either switch it or, or stick with it. So another thing I'm working on is how your expectations of yourself and of your agency, so about what you can control in the world, how those expectations influence other behaviors. Yeah. Um, and one of those other behaviors, we wanted something kind of real world and tangible mm-hmm. rather than these the squares that kind of jitter around a screen. It's not very impactful on people's lives. Yeah. So the thing we're interested in this study was compassionate action. If you have confidence that your actions will give you the results from the world that you expect, then you have a high sense of agency, you have a high self-efficacy, you are more likely to have more self-concept clarity, which just means that your sense of self, uh, as you report it, is more stable and consistent Mm -hmm. over time, or stable over time and consistent between the traits that you assign yourself. And we were wondering whether that group of traits of yourself or of your self-model will lead people to act more or less compassionately. So the idea behind that is that if you don't, if you don't believe that you can get the consequences from the world that you expect, why should you act nicely for someone else? Not because you are an evil person, but because you don't expect your actions to do anything for them. So it's like wasted effort. Oh, I see. Whereas if you think you can get the stuff from the world that you expect and you have high confidence in your abilities to control things in the world, you might be more likely to act compassionately and help other people just because you think you can
1: can actually do it. That's kind of interesting because you sometimes feel like people who are compassionate are people who have maybe, maybe this does fit though people have like more understanding of suffering and these kind of things so you sometimes think oh they've experienced that as well and themselves. yeah
2: yeah so I think there are other things that lead you to be compassionate and not compassionate so we don't expect these expectations of ourselves and of our control in the world to explain all of compassionate action just a, a small part of it but even that small part I think makes sense with what you were saying yeah so if you have experienced suffering you might understand the kind of causal chain that would help alleviate the suffering. Right. And yep. so if you understand that causal chain, then you feel self-efficacy in being able to alleviate suffering. Yeah. You feel a sense of agency over the actions that would alleviate suffering. Yeah. And so that might lead you to be more likely to try to alleviate the suffering. Right. And again, the interesting part of this research to me is that it's a it's kind of a non moral spin on compassionate yeah. action it's not because they're a better person or a nicer person or more consistently right. acting within their morals or something like that it's just that they believe they can help or yeah. they believe they can't help and that causes them to help more or less so we're waiting
1: on the results we're waiting that. on the results okay well maybe we'll have kelsey back on <laughs> part two yeah <laughs>
0: Thank you to Dr. Kelsey Paracod for joining us as our guest this episode. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher. She's the Australian one. And me, Ava Mada We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on MindsMatterPodcast.com. <laughs>